This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday. Time to talk politics. And one of our own panelists, Charles Souza, elected as a Liberal MP for Mississauga Lakeshore, which I guess means that his recovery from politics is derailed. I will talk to Charles later in the show, but I want to ask the panel if this is any kind of referendum on the Trudeau Liberals or the Poilievre Conservatives, given that this is the first election since Poilievre has been elected leader. We've got NDP leader Jagmeet Singh for the first time publicly threatening to withdraw from the agreement to support the minority Liberal government. And we have a bunch of developments that affect the city, revelations about the boondoggle that is the Eglinton Crosstown LRT, and now a demand that homeowners attest that they live in their homes, or else. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome former Ontario NDP MPP Sherry DeNovo, former Ontario Liberal MPP and Cabinet Minister Gerard Kennedy, and former Ontario PC MPP and former Treasurer Janet Ecker. Hello and welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Pleasure, Libby. Thanks uh, for having me. Let us begin with Janet. So the election of Charles in Mississauga Lakeshore uh, is it any kind of referendum on the national scene? Um, I don't think it's a referendum. I think every by-election has its own uh, uh, narrative and, and unique circumstances. I think it had a lot to do with the fact that Charles Sousa has run in that area before. Um, he was a very strong, you know, he had a very good profile as a finance minister uh, running again. He's a very presentable, you know, personable, good guy, if I do say so myself. So the fact that he would win um, was not a surprise to me. I think the the uh, the uh, difference between him and the conservative, I think, is a cause for concern, as is the difference between um, with the NDP, because they didn't do very well in that riding either. But I think it's too early and there wasn't enough sort of overall coverage in the riding to really, you know, on, on issues related to the riding to really make a, a sweeping judgment for any of the three parties. Uh, Gerard, what do you think? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think it is uh, sweeping. I think, you know, at different times, by-elections certainly can take the pulse of where people are thinking. Uh, we don't have a Polyev wave as yet. I think that's, that's relatively clear. Uh, perhaps uh, Mr. Trudeau, the Prime Minister, had a bump because of, I think, his more thoughtful testimony showing a side that a lot of people probably discounted in the past uh, a week or two ago. And, um, you know, there may be a, a few other things that the government can see, but it's, you know, this is a, a sort of a swing riding in the sense that it's gone between parties, but probably not as strong a litmus test uh, in terms of where people are at. And some of the other topics you want to discuss. There's lots of reasons for people to be at least somewhat uh, discontented. And, um, you know, I think it, it, it talks also to uh, Charles's appeal, uh, perhaps to the, the power of fight back in terms of uh, getting <laughs> yes. people elected. Uh, but I think there's a, probably a limit to the lessons that, that can be drawn. But I don't think I think the liberals will be smiling for at least a day. Uh, on <laughs> Sherry DeNovo, you know, David Miller tweeted, he said, well, they they lost by 14 points. And I'm not even sure if all the votes were counted then in a in in a writing that they lost only by six last time. And this shows that and at a time when the liberals are beset by all kinds of problems. So this shows that Poilievre is not doing well. Do you agree with that assessment? 
Um, uh, yes, I do. Um, I also, uh, though, agree with my colleagues on the panel that, you know, this is the be-all and end-all end all and, 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 you know, may not necessarily, um, you know, tell us who's going to be the next prime minister. But I do think it's a referendum. I mean, remember, um, Harper won this, this riding. And more importantly, you have to win the 905. Um, you have to make incursions there if you're going to be government. We know this. And so um, that, that Charles won it is no surprise. Again, he's had profile in the, in the area. People know him. Um, so on a personal level, of course, that works. But I think uh, David Miller is right to the degree that uh, if, if there really is a wave, which is what the Polyever team, you know, wants us all to believe that all of these people are flocking to the conservative brand, um, that this puts, this puts a, a, you know, false note to that. That's clearly not happening in a very populous area of the 905, which is a critical area for um, any potential government of Canada to win, I believe. So um, much of the pushback from the West uh, that Ontario doesn't count for much, it does. And and so I I, I think here this would be cause for concern if I was on the PolyF team, simply strategically. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janet, uh, so just a couple of last things on, on this. So Paulie Evra made himself scarce, and uh, recently he's had at least one uh, one appearance with mainstream media. But what was the strategy? I mean, did they just think, oh, well, we're going to lose this one, so let's not waste any time and energy? Or was this uh, a strategy? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, leaders make that assessment. Do they want to sort of throw everything into it? And I mean, maybe perhaps, and again, I'm not part of the campaign team, perhaps the early pol- polling showed that it was going to be a tough uh, riding to win. So let's, let's not sort of, you know, invest too much political capital in it. The other thing too is it's hard to know how much social media, like, cause they are, you know, big believers in sort of reaching voters very directly through various social media and sometimes can be quite sophisticated at it. So it's hard to know how much they push there and whether that was a failure or not. But I think certainly, I mean, I would, I would say uh, to Sherry that, that, you know, public opinion polls are certainly indicating that there's, there's more growth for the Tories overall. But certainly, yes, I think uh, I went assuming that uh, they're all sitting in the campaign bunker this morning, sort of pouring over the results and analyzing what it means and what it doesn't mean. But I think the other thing is I think the uh, when uh, Charles comes on this afternoon, you'll have to tease him about his failure at civilian life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> his failure at recovery. Uh, yeah, he's right. he's oh, off yeah, this clearly. wagon, boy. Clearly, yeah. And, I, and I, I, I hope that, you know, it's not socially contagious that you guys <laughs> I do too actually oh my heavens <laughs> um, final question about this to Gerard the turnout was shockingly low 26% voter turnout we've had really low voter turnouts in, in other recent elections but nothing that low well yeah no I think that's quite disturbing and I don't think any party should be happy with it uh, you know I, I was elected in a by-election in 1996 Forty percent was a kind of record turnout that David Miller and Rob Davis took part in that by-election. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, you know, usually the federal is 10 points higher than the provincial, which is 10 points higher than the municipal. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I think that's a takeaway for sure, to be worried that we're not getting uh, buy-in from people to make it worth their while. And that says a lot about what yeah. we're going to be able to do, because you, you do need people to... Uh, be sensitive to who's representing them and what they're representing them about, and you don't want them shrugging or giving up. And um, I think there's lots of tricky things ahead, so I think that is highly problematic and one reason for the Liberals to only uh, smile for a day, I think. (laughs) Only smile for a day. lesson for all of us. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sherry, um, the first, as far as I remember, public statement by Jagmeet Singh that he might get out of this agreement if the government doesn't do what he wants this time on health care. What do you make of that? Well, certainly um, the government needs to sit down with the premiers. That's pretty clear. But um, I, you know, the, the the messages that I've heard from the from the from Trudeau is that that's in the offing. 
Um, my concern is that we have a government in Ontario that's already shortchanged the healthcare system significantly, almost a billion dollars worth. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it's kind of fishy when a government that short shortchanges in its own budget, its own healthcare. Um, we'll look for more money from the from the Fed. So I think there's, you know, here in Ontario, that can't help but be noticed. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting that Jagmeet's come out with this, uh, this being the, you know, the litmus test. Um, I, I think there are, are, personally, as a recovering politician, <laughs> there are many other litmus tests that, that I, I was kind of hoping he'd come out and, and say something of, as dramatic about. But but good, you know, yeah, they should. And, uh, and, but I mean, I think they will. Um, so there's that. Uh, and I also think that it shows, uh, our federal, uh, you know, our, our conservative government here in a particularly bad light. I don't think they have a leg to stand on when it comes to asking the federal government for more, more money. So there's that. Janet, uh, my take on a lot of this, first of all, I, uh, you know, they're talking about money from the feds. I, you know, money is good, but I very strongly disagree that this problem is going to be solved by money. And the the other thing is my take on it. They just had a meeting and a bunch of provinces like Quebec, Alberta and Ontario. Well, they want money, but they don't want it tied to anything. And and I can sort of get why uh, the the feds aren't keen on that. Yeah, yeah, I know there's a lot of politics in this. And, and Libby, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, money is certainly part of the solution. There's no question. We're seeing that in the, in the pediatric uh, issue that's being happening across the country, where because of medical advances in the treatment of children, they reduced the number of beds because they didn't need them then, which was fine. But now that we've got a surge, it gets back to that point about no, you know, very little flexibility in the health system. And I'm on the board of the Canadian Medical Association, and our president, Dr. LaFontaine, Dr. Alika LaFontaine, has been very clear that, yeah, money's there, but until there is um, uh, more change in how that money is being spent, more money is only going to replicate the problems that we've got. So it's a very complex issue. I think Ottawa does need to step up to increase their share, and that's what the provinces are pushing for, is increasing Ottawa's share um, in healthcare, used to be, and again, you've probably heard the argument, used to be 50-50, and now they're down to, what, 20-some percent federally, and the provinces want it up to 30. Ottawa needs to step up. But I agree with you. There needs to be some agreement as to where the money goes, because we've had too many provinces over the years of different political stripes take money from Ottawa and not do with it what they promised they would do. And I think there needs to be some sort of agreement that doesn't let that happen. So it's messy. It's complicated. I think we all need to do what uh, the CMA president said, keep pushing our politicians. And Sherry, just for the record, the Ford government is spending more on health care than they did before. So uh, do they need more? Absolutely. But we also need significant reform and change in the system before that money is going to make a pause, a really substantial impact. Yeah, right. Uh, and Sherry, I, I, I mean, I know that, uh, uh, you know, the argument is, uh, yes, they're spending more in the gross number, but in terms of the percentage increases, but whatever, they, we, we throw a huge amount of money. Just have to say, less per capita than any other province, and they're spending it on empty beds, by the way, and not on staffing. Sherry, oh, um, with all due sure respect, they've got more budget. money for yeah. MRI machines, they've had more money for more nurses, they've been paying tuition costs for, for workers in the system, etc. So, I mean, you can argue it's not the right thing, you can argue it's not, it's not enough, but Please don't argue that they're not doing anything. Uh, oh, I, I, I would, I would argue that that this kind of piecemeal approach is is problematic. First of all, it's very hard to see where you're at, uh, but it's it's kind of the system <laughs> that needs somewhat of an overhaul. And uh, you know, we don't rank very well in terms of OECD countries. We're second highest in spending, and I believe second lowest in outcomes. So, oh yeah, the outcomes are terrible. Yep, Gerard, well, uh, why don't what's what's your yeah, view? I think, of this? I think we have to call it here, and this I hope will. Uh, will inoculate me away from Charles' stuff by saying things that aren't very politically great. But I think we've got to, we, this, there's an illness here in the dynamics of politics that allows everyone to duck and bob and weave and blame other people. 
Uh, and, you know, why can't the prime minister or his delegate, minister of health, convene some kind of uh, adjustment to the way that our hospitals are set up across the country? The reason is the premiers don't want to conference it. Well, exactly. Would like some money done right away. I don't know because I looked for it. I couldn't find what is Jagmeet Singh looking for from Mr. Trudeau. And it sort of seems like a general plea. Do something, please. Uh, well, you know, yeah, and it's and it, it, money. We owe it to, owe it to the Give parents me money. of kids doubled up in pediatric wards to say we're capable of more than this. Somebody has to take the hammer here and be responsible for a better outcome. The underbedding in Ontario started a, a time ago. It's it's a it's a vast mistake, and it's more acute now that we have, you know, we're getting thrown curveballs. Not just COVID, but this. Uh, flu that is putting a lot of kids, whether it's RSV or otherwise. So these are fixable problems, but the illness is really with a political culture that can't get to them because we don't want people stepping out of the people's toes. There's got to be room for exception to that. And it's not good to say, but I think the federal government should be allowed to hold the provincial government in a respectful way, in a way that doesn't interfere but that says, where are your outcomes? Where is your plan to be funded? Kind of what they eventually did to get some child care, affordable child care underway. That, that's what has to happen. Does it have to happen issue by issue? Well, in a broken kind of political side of the system, because I don't think we want to accuse other parts of the system that are trying to do the job of being broken. That's a throw-up-your-hands thing. But that's the problem here. We need to be able to say, what's the best solution for now, and does the federal government, is it allowed to expect something for the dollars they put in? It has to be. Well, yeah, let's tell that, tell that to Danielle Smith and Francois Legault. Um, that's, I think, a big problem. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it really, it's, it's almost, it seems, sometimes it seems unsolvable, and you're talking about kids and it's terrible, but older people are next, Right. Well, and the problem, you know, one of the issues with this thing, Libby, is that really worries me is that, you know, we did have a good, solid, universal uh, health care system in Canada. And it has deteriorated so badly, as you said, the OECD data, you know, doesn't lie. And what starts to happen is if taxpayers lose faith in the systems you're asking them to pay for, they stop supporting them. And so for people who worry about, you know, uh, more public sector health care, this is one of the things that pushes that that uh, that barrier because people just want care. You know, they don't care where they have to go for it or how much it's going to cost, whatever. They want the care. And so that's the other big risk. There's certainly the risk to individuals, whether it's children or seniors or other people with, with illnesses, that they're not getting the care they need. And the data on that is actually in some provinces horrifying. Um but we need to fix, you know, get some solutions out there, give some people some hope, show that there's a plan, that things are actually happening, um, or we're going to lose support for paying for that public sector health care system. And, and just one point that I want to make in terms of crisis in emergency rooms. When I was a cub repo- reporter at Global Television after a stint in the United States, and I don't want to give the year, but it was a very long time ago, uh, the first major thing that I did after I arrived was was a series on the crisis in our emergency rooms. Yeah. So... Yeah. It's 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 not a problem from today, but that's no excuse. Not no, but what what we're seeing though is you're absolutely right. It, it, the emergency room thing ebbs and flows. I mean, I you know there's been all kinds of years where you've had emergency room problems for various reasons, but this is the first time in Canada that we, the system has been faced with sort of uh, ongoing pandemic type crises. So you had COVID. Then you had the variations of COVID. Now we've got flu, you know, new versions of flu that are very, very virulent for various reasons, et cetera. So this is the first time we've really had this kind of across-the-board crisis in the system, and it's proving. It is proving. All those people who said we have a, you know, we have a looming tidal wave coming at us in terms of health care, that they were absolutely right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, but, but I, I think but I'd yet, like to not... But, 
But yet, I, I have to say, I you know, Tommy Douglas Okay, one that. at a time. <laughs> Gerard, you started first. Go ahead. Well, thank you. I, I'll be brief then, because I think you, you probably waited longer. But, I, you know, I, I basically think that we don't want to awfulize the system. I do think that, um, you know, a little extra risk by somebody, it could be a premier, it could be the, the prime minister, can get us past this. We, we have some lessons from pandemic. A lot of healthcare workers voted with their feet and left the system. So we can't ignore that and say it's business as usual. And we can't just deplore things. We, sit, we just can't. There's a lot of good happening. I had, you know, my, I've had illness in my family where very serious things have been addressed in that system. And, and the awfulizing, I think, leads us to, to not very good places. But we, you know, I do think. Is that, that a new word, awfulizing? You know what? I've got to give credit to Annie Kidder. When I was uh, a critic in education, probably oh. opposite Janet, uh, and, and, and then uh, minister, uh, she said, we got to be careful not to awfulize the things because it just has people yeah. bring their kids to private school, which is kind of what I think Janet is, is referring to. Okay, uh, think, we've all learned a new word. At all costs, somebody's got to say, we're going to do something with this. And again, I don't know what Jugmeet had in mind, but hopefully there's a plan he's looking for, and maybe it, it, it sees its way through these dynamics. We're missing a lot of people. There are some new diseases with implications out there, and that should be enough to get us past these fake barriers, these fake illnesses we have in our political system. And if not, well, then people really do have a right to complain. Okay, we don't have much time left. Just a couple of things I want to touch on. There there are a bunch of things happening at the municipal level that have a lot of people worried. We had a leak about uh, the boondoggle that is the Eglinton Crosstown LRT. Uh, we have a couple of councillors calling for a public inquiry. I'm not sure that's the right way to go, but uh, the mayor, the strong mayor, and the premier don't seem to want to talk about it. They want to, I don't know, I mean, you know, it's concerning when Metrolink says we don't see that the people who are getting paid to do this, uh, that they know how to do it. Well, I think, I think Libby, uh, there, no question there needs to be, I think, more transparency. Uh, it's, it's a complicated issue. There's a lot of reasons why a project of this complexity runs into delays, and you see that around the world, actually, on projects that are uh, big and complex, like Crossrail in London, for example. Um, so it's not unusual to have these kinds of issues uh, in a major project. But what I think um, um, the government does need to do is to to sit down with Metrolinx and the public and say, here is the plan, because there are plans. There are, you know, a lot of people trying very hard to solve problems that come up in a construction project this big and complex. Um, but you need to be transparent with people because the folks along Eglinton have been living with a lot of disruption for a long time. I think you're seeing the good news is you're starting to see that a lot of those intersections are being cleared. Um, you know, the equipment's going away. They're, you know, they're being cleared up for use, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think there needs to be a little more uh, discussion with the public about what is really happening there. And, uh, when it, I mean, it will get done. It'll be a great system when it's done. They're learning, taking the lessons from Ottawa. I think that's the other thing that's really important is that report said, here's how you don't do it. And especially on the safety stuff, and I know Metrolinx, yeah, you saw the CEO uh, quoted in public talking about how they were double-checking all the safety requirements that they're asking for uh, from the, the, the people who are constructing the system before they turn it, you know, sort of open it up to the public. And I think it may take extra time, but I think they should be doing that, actually, frankly. I mean, I think this this speaks to the same problems that we've been talking about in healthcare: the privatization of public systems. I mean, private companies need to make profits. Um, and when we've done three Ps in the past, uh, we always see the same pattern develop. Um, and yet we continue, governments continue to do them. Um, and I just wanted to say, you know, Tommy Tuckless was voted the, you know, the most famous and revered Canadian not that long ago um, because of our OHIP system. And, you know, again, defunding a system, um, making it unworkable and then selling it off to the private sector is the strategy, is the strategy of this government, has been the strategies of other governments. And, um, uh, and that does not work. And Metrolinx is a classic example of that. We lived with it in my riding when they put through, you know, the airport link. Um, and, uh, and again, um, here's yet another case where it just doesn't work.
Uh, well, no, that's not true, Sherry. The, the uh, UP Express is a very successful thing, and the biggest problem there is they can't meet the volume. It has worked really well. We've seen we have seen projects run by governments succeed and fail. We've seen P3s succeed and fail. What is important is that the right people are given the power to manage the projects correctly and and let them run. But for a project such as this um, that is so complex, and as I said, others have run into that. But the other thing, Sherry, with all due respect, I find it really hard that Premier McGinty, Premier Wynn, Premier Ford, I've sit down in a closed room and say, hey, we've got kids and family in the healthcare system. Let's screw it up so we can sell it to somebody at a profit. I mean, come on. I mean, they're just as motivated as, you know, we may disagree on the options, but they're just as motivated to make this system work as, as everybody else is in the political system. So please don't do this thing about a deliberate they, plan uh, okay. to defund and wreck the I'm jumping nurses. in here because I'm, I'm looking at the clock. Uh, that's why we have people with very different views here. I'm going to give everybody 20 seconds. Also want to mention, uh, I mean, I have to admit my eyes kind of glaze over when I see the latest attestation that, yes, we're going to do something about sexual misconduct in the military. Uh, Anita Annan said that. She does get things done, but I don't know. Uh, anyway, you each have 20 seconds, starting with Sherry, 20 seconds. Sorry, Libby, but we're talking about sexual assault in the military? Uh, whatever. Yeah. Whatever you want to say, looking forward to next okay, week. I just, I, I just think that uh, if, you know, Please, uh, you know, repeal Bill 124. Don't, uh, don't take it to the Supreme. Don't appeal it. Uh, pay nurses. Pay our staff reasonable salaries. Uh, don't contract out nursing. Who um, uh, do the obvious things in the healthcare system and and put all the money in you budgeted for in Ontario. For that, that's number one. And uh, number two, you know, our public servants work really hard. Let's just value them. Okay, Gerard, twenty seconds. Well, look, I, I think, you know, Metrolinx or somebody, it can't just have power, it's got to take responsibility. I mean, who made the mistakes there and in healthcare are not as important, but they they give faith to people if we if we focused in on it. And I see in both those situations that that's possible. I, I, I think sexual abuse in the military needs more than the time we have, and, and I wish Minister Anand good luck. I think she is very sincere and capable uh, on that front. Janet, last 20 seconds to you. Okay, yeah, we do owe our uh, people in military service more than what they're getting in terms of sexual abuse. And I do, as as Gerard says, wish the minister well. She seems to be pretty competent. Hopefully she can get it fixed. The last thing I would like to say is, you know, we've on the healthcare system is there are an incredible number of good people doing incredible things under incredible strain um, and to make the system work for people. And, you know, just as many success stories that never make it in the media as the horror stories. But uh, I think we do need to always... Uh, you know, talk about them. And Sherry, trust me, Ontario's going to be spending more on health care every year as long as you and I live. Okay, I've got to wrap things up and uh, amen to that about uh, health care workers. I see that every day. And thank you so much, Janet Ecker, Sherry DeNovo, and Gerard Kennedy. Take care, guys. Take care. Best of the thank season. Thank you. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, tis the season, unfortunately, for scams. We're going to talk about some of them and how to protect yourself when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Tis the season. Unfortunately, it's the season for fraud as well as cheer, and I think it's reaching a kind of saturation point. When I was on a day off very recently, virtually every time the phone rang on our old landline, it was a scam to the point where we were talking about just getting rid of it. But then I looked at my cell phone and let me count the scams, and I have it right here. Okay, going down the list. Easy Web Trust, what the heck is that? I think that's a scam. And then Interac, it says, Interac e-transfer, you have a pending transaction about to expire. I don't think so. Uh, then another one from a, an alleged 905 area code, payment received. No, I don't think so. Uh, what else is here? 
Um, we tried to deliver a parcel. Something went wrong. I don't think so. And on and on and on it goes. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's getting to the point that actually things that are legit look like scams to people. But uh, people, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 And now I am joined by Jeff Horncastle, Acting Client and Communications Outreach Officer at the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, Carmi Levy, a technology analyst and journalist based in London, Ontario, and Detective David Coffey with the Toronto Police Services Financial Crimes Unit. Um, First of all, uh, this morning on the morning Zoom, Sam was suggesting that she thinks that maybe this explosion of scammy stuff uh, could be because of the breach of of the vaccine portal where we had some personal information. Uh, Let's start with Carmi. Does that sound uh, plausible to you? Well, I wouldn't say that this one single breach is responsible for the explosion, you know, globally around this time of year. Every year we do see an uptick in this kind of activity at this time of year, simply because we are buying more online. We are leaning more heavily on our apps, on our services, on our e-payment uh, services, paying from our phones. And scammers know this. They try to target us where we gather, where we are, you know, where we're active. And at holiday time, we are active digitally. So, uh, you know, but, you know, it does raise a really good point. These breaches do lead to historic increases in this kind of activity. As our data gets leaked out into the public domain, so out of databases where it should be protected and then shared uh, on the dark web, bought and sold among criminals uh, and used for additional kinds of attacks like this, we do see that line, that trend line continue to increase. So it certainly does play a role, but I wouldn't say that one of those breaches is responsible for everything we're seeing now. It is contributing to it, however, and it really is a reason why we should pay more attention when these things do happen, because that level of risk is going up every day. Okay, and again, I'm looking at my phone, and I have to tell you, I'm kind of, when I see these things, I'm afraid to touch them, which is why they're still there. So, uh, De- Detective David Coffey, uh, should we be, uh, you know, clicking on them and deleting them or leaving them? What, what do we do with this stuff? Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, certainly, I uh, understand the apprehension. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, invulnerable to uh, getting those exact kind of messages. The key is not clicking on any link that is in the message. Um, it can be deleted. Deleting it outright is uh, should keep you relatively safe. You run the small risk of uh, deleting uh, legitimate messages, of course. But for the most part, if there is any message that comes to you that contains a link, um, it is generally not legitimate and should be erased immediately. Okay, that's that's good advice. And uh, um, the other question I have, uh, Jeff Horncastle, is, is how do you tell the difference? I mean, I I don't make that many transactions that I can tell that something that comes, um, you know, and I, I haven't done anything recently, I, I can tell it looks wrong. But, you know, you have something here. It says Interact e-transfer. Well, you know, people have those. How do you tell? Well, yeah, in, in a lot of cases, it, it's very difficult to tell. Um, a lot of them look very legitimate. So the best way to, to go is, like David said, don't never click on any links. And if you're not sure, um, you know, if there is claiming to be from Netflix or from a financial institution, just log into your account the way you normally would and verify that your, your account is up to date. Because in a lot of these messages, it'll say that your, your payment information has to be updated. Please click on this link. Or as you mentioned, you know, an e-transfer is waiting for you. Whether they claim to be the CRA or, you know, other government agencies, reach out to them directly to verify the legitimacy and just never um, try to avoid clicking on links. Yeah, try to avoid clicking on links. And what about the area codes? Because the area codes, you know, um, in the texts, right? So one looks like it's 204, I think that is that Edmonton or Calgary. One is 306. I don't even know where that is. Uh, uh, is. Is that any kind of a clue, Carmi? 
Um, you know, you would think it would be because then what they're trying to do is make it look like it's local to you, that it's familiar to you, that it's an organization that you might have done business with previously that feels legitimate. So that's why you see a lot of these scam messages that look like they're coming from your bank, your insurance company, the city where you live, and the area code is part of that process. They they know where you are. If your data is out there, then they know exactly where you live, and then they can send a message that aligns with your area code. Like in my case, uh, you know, I'll be in, I'm, I live in London, Ontario, so I'll see 519. Oh, it's from my backyard. They feel that you would be more inclined to click on it. Don't fall for the bait. It's yet another one of those legitimacy-seeking tactics that they use to get behind your sort of feeling that of cynicism that, oh, I, I really shouldn't click on this, and that you trust it enough to open it and follow its instructions. So just because it's local, just because it looks like it, the, the logo looks good, just because the, the address looks familiar, don't take that bait. Anytime you get a message that you don't expect that has a link in it, uh, you know, uh, you know, every, you know, Jeff and David are absolutely right. Uh, don't be opening it and clicking on it. Delete it and then contact the sender directly. Go to their website. And that'll give you the full story. Uh, David, uh, here's a, a weird question. So uh, this day that I was at home, oh, all this stuff. And usually uh, if you just, if it's, un, I mean, I just don't necessarily pick up an unknown number. And usually they don't leave a message and, and that's a hint. And, uh, you know, on the odd time that I do pick it up, it's a scam, obviously. But uh, the other day, for the first time, I saw the message on it. It said, likely scam and i'm thinking why don't they say that on all of them uh, what what's that about it you know it the phone rang and it said likely scam that is something i'm not familiar with it's certainly uh i'm not sure is that coming through your landline or yourself yeah it was the landline the landline i, Which is I, I a, honestly yeah. don't know I, that Home sounds phone. fantastic i mean it's uh it's uh, sadly our landline that some of us have still cling to that technology uh it seems to be used more prevalently by fraudsters than by legitimate means. Um, so if the, the, the bell companies or the phone companies, sorry, are coming up with a way to uh, possibly alert us of fraudsters, I, kudos to them. Uh, that was my next question about the phone companies, and I don't know who wants to take this, but do they have any responsibility? I mean, obviously, their firewalls are fairly useless. I mean, I'm, I'm a Rogers customer, I'll say, so the home phone is full of scams, and now I'm looking my cell phone is as well. Yeah, um, and, and you're absolutely right, Libby. They do have a certain degree of accountability, and the good news here is that our national telecom regulator, the CRTC, has been sort of pushing them to tighten uh, their technology, to up the, their level of technology, to make it harder for scammers to have free access to the telephone network. Around this time last year, they were required by the regulator to introduce a new technology known as Stir Shaken, which basically requires everyone, uh, when they are sending out, uh, yeah, when they want to make a phone call, a commercial phone call, uh, they have to authenticate on the network. In other words, prove that you're legitimate. If you don't, then this phone call isn't going through. So you may you may have remembered that our you know the amount of this kind of scam activity dropped a little bit off toward the end of last year and early this year. And then as the scammers figured out how to get around it, the numbers came back up again and we're kind of right back where we were this time. So it's a bit of a tit for tat back and forth battle between the scammers, the telephone companies and our national regulators, but they are working to to improve and the technology introduce better tools to protect us. The problem is as we know, the bad guys are always a step ahead of the good guys, and that, that balance kind of is, is never quite in the middle. There's always going to be a bit of tension. We're always going to have those phone calls leaking through. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Barry. He has an interesting question. Good afternoon. I have a question for the experts. Um, I was on social media a while ago, and they said, if you take your, once the call comes in, don't say a thing, you know, um, you press the asterisk sign three times or the number sign three times and it messes up their system. Is there any um, truth to that? No, no. I mean, I've, I've heard any number of different techniques for messing it up, up, 
up up to and including an air horn, which I really wouldn't use recommend using in the house. Um, but truth of the matter is, there's no way to verify or validate that any of that technology works. They're all using different tools, and those tools are constantly evolving. Um, and I, you know, I hate to give them credit, uh, but in many cases, they are very sophisticated. And so, you know, pressing a certain sequence of buttons or whatever is is just not, you know, it isn't going to guarantee that these calls are going to stop happening. Your best bet is simply to not engage uh, and to you know let that call you know you know remain unanswered. And if it comes in, uh, you know, not on a call or if it's in your inbox or in uh, in an, uh, like an email inbox or, or text message or social messaging uh, DM, um, just don't answer it, don't respond to it because the instant that you show that you're there, that sends uh, signals to them that hey, we've got a live one, and guess what? The algorithm will then direct more activity towards you in future. Right. What I do is I don't answer and I just uh, and silence and then they hang up. That, 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 that's your best answer. And, and in fact, you know, use the call display on your screen as well, because if it looks iffy there, uh, then you shouldn't be picking up on it. I, you know, generally speaking, the way I see it, even if it looks legit because they, they can spoof the call display, make it look like it comes from a number that you're familiar with. Um, what I've done is I've simply told everyone, if, if it's on my home line, it's going to voicemail. If you want to leave a message, feel free or just text me. Nobody calls me spontaneously, spontaneously anymore. It's a very different world. You have to give them credit. I guess I say, well, I hate these crammers, but I have to give them credit that they have legitimate numbers now because I've called back the numbers and says, oh, yeah, so-and-so company said, oh, you just give me a call. No, I didn't call you at all. If I mm-hmm. They're real numbers, and um, they're using someone else's number. So I tell the people, exactly. like, well, okay. maybe contact your service provider and tell them that you're, this number is being used for nefarious purposes. Okay, we've got to wrap yeah, things up. Barry, thanks for your call. Uh, uh, I've got to wrap things up right away. Actually, I think we're probably going to have to revisit it. Uh, it's just people don't. If it looks too good to be true or if you're not expecting it, uh, it's probably a scam. And thank you so much for this. Uh, Jeff Horncastle, Carmi Levy, and Detective David Coffey. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, we are taking a break, and when we come back, uh, we will talk to uh, the newly elected MP-elect, Charles Souza. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As we've been reporting, former recovering politician panel member and former Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza won yesterday's by-election in Mississauga Lakeshore by an overwhelming margin. Granted, the turnout was tiny, 26 percent. And that is just one of the implications I want to touch on. Charles joins me now. Hi, Charles. Hi, Libby. Great to be back. Great to be with you. Congratulations. Uh, what are you thinking today? Well, you know, well now I'm just uh, getting back to everyone and uh, getting myself uh, oriented because I have to make my way up, uh, up to Ottawa and to understand what, uh, what next steps are in front of me. And um, I'm very excited. I'm very excited for the opportunity to represent the community again. Uh in terms of the, the party implications, they're kind of a split thinking. Some people say, well, it shows the Liberals are in better shape or that the Conservatives are in worse shape than we thought. Uh, some people say it, it has no bearing on anything. You are a, a known and liked quantity in the riding, and that's the end of the story. It's a bellwether riding. I mean, it moves back and forth. Uh, you know, there are some years it's held more prominently by one party or another. Uh, but it does fluctuate. But people here do take note of who the individual is and what the parties stand for. And I think they want a more positive tone. They're really not keen on some of the reckless uh, or gimmicky stuff that's coming out uh, by some. And they want to be sensitive about what it means for their lives and ensuring that we can afford the programs that matter to them. The turnout was tiny, 26 uh, percent. You know, that is not good news. And was not unexpected. We always were fearful that it would be a low turnout, just as the municipal ones were pretty low. And um, so it's a concern. We tried our utmost to try to, you know, garner some excitement and pull the boat. Um, but, yeah, and, and the weather held, which was good, because it could have been worse. <laughs> but in the end, uh, certainly the sample of the size of the people that voted is 
very telling in terms of a general election, and I'm, I'm very encouraged by the outcome. Okay, the the thing that everybody is kind of whispering about now is like, oh, there does he have some kind of uh, promise or side deal with Justin Trudeau about uh, some kind of job that you'll get when you get there, uh, maybe something in the next cabinet shuffle? Um, yeah, the priority now is for me to just represent the community. I'm not making any deals. I'm certain, you know, I've appreciated the outpouring of support of mem- members and colleagues now, I guess I can call them, uh, from the House over the last, last number of months. While I'm on your show, I was getting calls saying, hey, why don't you consider running? Why don't you consider running? And, and, and that was very touching. Uh, but I wanted to make it for the right reasons, and my wife and I had to deliberate over it. And our kids, you know, they're adults now, so we have some flexibility. Um, that's a priority, is just to give back and, and be a strong voice for the community. You know, on today's panel, uh, we were talking about the need for the federal government to do something about health care, even though it is a provincial priority. <clears throat> In terms of uh, older people, we've had seniors ministers calling for reports and strategies, uh, none of which seem to go anywhere. I know that uh, your volunteer job in the community, you were building a, a, a long-term care home for your community, for the Portuguese community. So do you have interest in uh, that kind of area? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we know that rising costs um, in healthcare is a concern, and we want to make certain that people are served. And with, uh, you know, with the dynamics of aging in our community, even more of an issue. And so I think the province is certainly mindful of that, and, and the federal government's mindful. That's why they want accountability in terms of the transfer payments that they make to the provinces. I was calling for it as well, and we, next, we, we, we appreciate that we want the monies to go to where the needs are most. And um, it, there needs to be accountability, and there needs to be changes in the way we serve, and I think on your program we've talked a lot about that. And uh, institutional care is not necessarily what we want to see. We want more home care. We want more people living with some degree of respect and dignity and getting um, you know, proper care, especially those that are in acute positions, to minimize the impact of them staying in a long-term care bed uh, would be beneficial for them. But ultimately, that will have to be the case in which you know, we need PSWs and others to be well-served, and we need to attract them. So that's going to be an ongoing debate. I just got elected only yesterday, so I have to you know, dig in deep, more deeply in terms of where we stand and what the amounts of transfers are being requested and what does it mean in terms of the of the federal government's use of those funds because we saw what happened with the pandemic and it wasn't very you know there wasn't accountability and, and we want to make certain that our people those that are pay our taxpayers there's only one that they get well served by 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 what they do well yeah we were just talking about that today so uh, have you thought about what the role of the federal government is and and uh you know there's an impasse because the federal government wants to tie money that it gives and some of the provinces absolutely don't want to well because it's you know there's the jurisdictional disputes and they want to make certain that they have the autonomy but they also want the, the federal government to provide more funding uh, beyond that which has been in the past and, and I, I i understand the dilemma um but given some historic issues in the past two years there is some need to make certain that the monies are well employed and bottom line the the taxpayer, the constituents, the people that live in my riding, they don't care if you're provincial, federal, or municipal. They just want to make certain that they go to the hospital or they have the needs that are, are there for them that they get served. And even a person that has an office, a political office, or a government office, I should say, in my case, we serve them regardless of what level of government they, they, were, they were trying to deal with. So I understand the jurisdictional uh, constraints here. I dealt with a lot of that in, in my day as well. And I tried to establish a cooperative securities regulator as an example by which to minimize some of that to improve our competitiveness and reduce costs overall. But yeah, let me, we have to change in order to sustain our programs going forward. Well, I, I mean, it looks like that squabbling is getting worse, not better. We have Danielle Smith in Alberta. We have Francois Legault in Quebec, who he's the one who usually gets his way. Uh, and Doug Ford here in Ontario is no slouch when it comes no, to that. No, and those squeaky wheels make a lot of noise and they, they get a lot of attention. But at the same time, I think the electorate are kind of tired. 
they're like, really? Do we need to go through this now when we have such pressing matters that are more, um, more, more important to them? And these transfer payments are about translating into health, into health services. The other stuff, even, I mean, I mean the dispute we have with, uh, with carbon tax, for example. Yeah. Ontario was exempt. We weren't even required to have it. But we made these political decisions, and they're politically motivated, and those are the wrong things to do. And I'm hoping that we go forward, we'll find ways to stand more united for the benefit of those that we serve. That's, I'm trying to be as positive as I can, and, and yeah, I just got elected, so maybe, <laughs> I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm a recovering politician that hasn't really recovered. No, but, you haven't recovered at all, at Charles. Same time, I'm trying to stay positive as we go forward. And I'm hoping that will prevail. I mean, I, I would think, uh, you know, I want to end on a positive note, too, but I, I would think that, you know, some of the issues for MPs is just, like, how do you get anything done? And I'm told that it's a bit more difficult in the federal, in a federal landscape than it is provincially. Um, it's a bigger, bigger pond, right? It's a lot more uh, moving parts, and I'll try to navigate through them if, as best I can. Ultimately... My first priority, my first duty is to make certain that my neighbors and friends and constituents here, regardless of what, who they voted for, regardless, they just want to make certain that we serve them. So I'll do and, my best to serve them the best way I can, the fastest way I can. And, and what did they tell you at the door was their top priority? You know, seniors are concerned about their fixed income because of inflation at this point, And we know it's a global matter, and they want to make certain that they're protected, and there have been some supports that we're providing Young kids and young families, they just want to make certain that, you know, their kids have a good start in life to ensure that we have good education to provide for them so that they can get those good jobs, jobs that will pay effectively because of the cost of living. And so affordability is an issue for many. But a real priority in my community, because we're the waterfront, we're, we, 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 the part of this is all of Mississauga is on this area is, uh, is the lakefront, and they worry about uh, access to the water, protection of the environment, our air shed in the area, and that means congestion and traffic has to be removed. And all of that, though, is coupling with the economy. So if we're able to, like for me, protecting the environment is also a matter of economic benefit. And if we can find ways to bring in those green jobs and be at the forefront of many of the technology that are available for those protection measures, we improve our economy and and hopefully grow in a positive way. And, and I think we're poised to do just that, not just here in Mississauga, but throughout Canada. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Libby, it's been a pleasure having weekly chats with you and with the team. And I, and I want you to pass on my good wishes to the rest of them and that they're always welcome to come back to Ottawa. Okay, and, and when, you're, when you're in town, uh, you're always welcome to, to come back for a coffee or a chat, and I'm sure we'll be calling on you. A great pleasure having you on the panel, and really all the very best to you. Thank you, Libby. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.